Welcome to Comic Culture. Your one-stop shop for discovering more about comic book characters, stories, and general analysis of these epic tales. So join us on this journey across mediums and multiverses to learn more about the amazing world of comics. I'm Trey. This is Jojo. And I'm Petey. Hello, everyone. How are you guys doing, Jojo and Trey? Hanging in there. Pretty good. No, no complaints. Pretty good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's jump into the episode four breakdown of Falcon and Winter Soldier. Uh, Jojo, that's all you. Yeah, so episode four, there's, there's a lot that happened. Um, we won't really do a synopsis just because we don't have a lot of time and there's just so much to dive into and I just want to get to the meat of it. So if you haven't watched episode four, uh, go ahead and watch that before you listen to this. So to try to, let's just go right into it. So <clears throat> do you guys buy the script flip of painting Carly as the good person now and US agent as the bad guy? So before we dive into that, I just want to give a little context to that question, because if you've watched the series so far, the Flag Smashers have been kind of portrayed as the bad people. You know, Carly, even in episode three, she kills innocent people without, she basically made the decision on her own. She didn't uh, talk to anybody. It wasn't a group discussion. Um, she just decided herself that, yeah, we're going to blow this place up to, to make a point right? Um, and, you know, U.S. agent in the first couple episodes, although came off a little bit arrogant, you do kind of sympathize with him. You see that he wants to do what's right. He has a moment with his wife and kind of talks about like living up to that legacy that Captain America left and that he's not necessarily trying to be Captain America, but he's trying to fill those shoes as best as he can. So again, I'll repeat the question. Do you guys buy that script flip of painting Carly as a good person in episode four and U.S. agent as the bad guy? Yeah, so here's my take on it. I'm really hoping they take something and run with it. That was mentioned in episode four. Um, one of the Flag Smashers, I'm not sure the character's name, but it's actually the character that John Walker killed earlier mentions the idea that they live in a world of gray and there's no heroes and villains anymore. I'm hoping to take that idea and run with it where we don't really necessarily have one villain in this. We have a bunch of people working in the gray to kind of achieve their own agendas. Um, that's what I'm hoping happens, but I am worried that it's going to be a complete script flip where now Carly is somehow a good person and Agent Walker is a bad guy. I really hope that's not the case. I think that's a really lame way to kind of tie this all together is making them all fight against the new Captain America and taking the shield back. I kind of want to see them work in the gray. Um, and I don't know. I honestly, I'm, if that's the case, then it's going to be good because then we don't really know what to expect. But if it is just now, I've seen a lot of things saying, oh, now Captain Walker is going to be the new bad guy. It's like, well, that is kind of lame. And I don't intentionally buy that. I like the idea more of Carly being more of this, this supremacist who doesn't think she's a supremacist. Um, I thought the way Sam treated her was really cool to get an idea and to feel her humanity. Um, and to feel that she really does think that what she's doing is right. Um, but I do not want to see complete script flip where all of a sudden she's painted as a hero. I want to see a lot more of this gray area explored. I mean, you've got Carly, you've got Zemo, you've got 
the new Captain America, John Walker. And then you also have Agent 13, Agent Carter, who also seems to be working in the gray. And then even Falcon and Winter Soldier aren't exactly doing things by the book. So you have all these characters and I kind of just want to see them come to some sort of resolution, maybe not together, but that it somehow resolves itself and that, um, I don't know, maybe the Flag Smashers are able to kind of let things go. But I don't know. I don't really know what to expect. Short answer, no. Long answer, no. Um, <laughs> not impressed with that episode really at all. Not impressed with a lot of the things that they're trying to do. It can still be saved, and I trust Disney that I probably will like where it ends up going based on a, you know, a track record of 30 movies and a couple of TV shows that have all gone smashingly well. But it so far seems like it's going to take the lazy way out in, in a lot of ways. Um, one, I do think it's pretty ridiculous that Sam was not only willing to have a conversation with Carly after she intentionally murdered many people, and, and I respect that, yeah, he wasn't even willing to have one conversation with John Walker, who up until the end of this episode had really given him almost nothing, if not, if anything, to any reason to not like him, but wasn't even willing to have a conversation with him. Wasn't even willing to get in a Jeep with him when he had, the alternative was walking 20 miles, and yet he's willing to go negotiate with a terrorist. So it just seems my biggest takeaway from this show is they don't trust the readers to make decisions for themselves. They're trying to force us into a conclusion. And I feel that in a lot of different ways. Um, I was really excited for the potential of ultimately John Walker was probably going to cross a line that Captain America wasn't going to cross. Fully expected that, knowing enough about U.S. agent, was excited for the discussion of if Captain America had crossed some lines, would he have been able to do more good? Um, I think that would have been a very interesting conversation to have. And they've completely, I don't want to say shut that off because I think there is kind of a tiny possibility that maybe he didn't kill that guy so much as just beat him within an inch of his life, which still is something very not Captain America like, but we could still have the discussion of if Captain America took things a little farther, could he get more done? And I think that's the conversation that the comic book version of us agent is trying to have. And the show just jumped right to, um, well, we've been hinting that you're not supposed to like this guy. So let's just have him in a drug induced rage, kill somebody. So now you definitely definitely don't like yeah i have to agree i i don't buy it i think um as far as the writing goes it's overcomplicated to the point where i don't know if any of the dust is going to settle in two episodes and that's what worries me right is we still have questions about u.s agent we're skeptical skeptical of carly like i just don't see how we're supposed to buy that she's her intentions, I understand, are good, but the fact that they're really pushing for us to dislike U.S. agent and now for us to like Carly, I, yeah, I just don't buy it, especially because last night I actually watched Civil War. Zemo literally does the same exact thing as Carly. He blew, blows up, right, a building, and granted, he kills someone of much bigger implications than the people that Carly killed, but does the same exact thing. And Sam Wilson is on the side of Captain America where they need to hunt Zemo down and just stop him, right? So it kind of, to me, it's kind of weird that given a different person, the scenarios are, are completely different. So I don't, 
I'm not sure where they're going with this. Um, and like I said, I just don't know if there's going to be a real conclusion to this. And I guess that's not necessarily a problem, but I think with a lot of these, the new series and the previous movies, they're pushing too much of, we're not closing this chapter. We don't want closure because they just want to keep propelling, propelling, propelling so that they can add things later on. And as far as storytelling, yes, it's very intriguing, but I just, I guess to an extent, it just won't satisfy me as, as a, a watcher of, of this series, right? Um, so then I guess the next big question, and we don't have to go into um, what you guys would answer personally, but this is kind of just a setup of, of the ethics behind this question. And it's, would you take the super soldier serum if you had the chance? Now, not given the same scenario as US agent, let's just be pretty generic. Um, just any scenario where if you're given the super soldier serum, would you take the chance? And that's kind of to set up, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line between when it's the right thing to do and when it's the wrong thing to do? Because obviously this episode portrays as John Walker doing the wrong thing by taking this super ser superhero serum. Well, when it's given to Steve Rogers, we're supposed to kind of applaud and, and accept that. So for you guys, what, where do you guys draw the line? How do you justify it? So I think it's a no-brainer. I pretty much identify 100% with the approach that Battlestar took of absolutely. Think about the good you can do. I think it's, again, I'm going to use the word lazy like a million times in this episode. It's not, they talk about, it's just such a leap. I'm sorry. It's such a leap to go from, because there's now 18 super soldiers in the world, we have supremacy. That's such a leap. They live in a world of superheroes and Thor is from Asgard and all these other people with superpowers walk all over New York City. How does creating a super soldier all of a sudden introduce a supremacy problem that wasn't there before? It's just maybe adding 10, 20 more superpowered people. Now, is it bad for the world that people with gray morals take the super soldier serum? Absolutely. But if you're someone who, like Battlestar, like Steve Rogers, like John Walker, who believe that they're trying to do the best that they can for their country, for their people, I think it's a pretty easy decision to take the serum. And I did like, I've hated on the writing to a, to a pretty large extent, but I did appreciate that he kind of, you know, he looked at Battlestar and kind of acknowledged his issues with maybe anger or, or self-control. And he said, even though it's going to, you know, should I take it, even though it's going to exemplify or exaggerate all the bad and Battlestar kind of did a callback to, well, you know, almost like the, uh, the recurring joke <laughs> between Winter Soldier, or excuse me, Black Widow and uh, Hawkeye, you know, remember this time when we were in war, think about how much good you could have done. So I guess I'll close in saying, yes, I would have absolutely taken it. I see why he took it. Um, Battlestar said he would have taken it as well. And I would bet all the money I have in my wallet right now that the next episode opens with a flashback to John Walker and Battlestar in Afghanistan or wherever they were stationed previously. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with that, that I would take it. I think the opportunities it would give you to help people and 
on a more selfish level, just the opportunity to have the, that power would be pretty awesome. Uh, off of that, I do think the idea that it presents is intriguing in the sense that it does put Cap again on this pedestal that Zemo talks about where, okay, so you guys are telling me Steve Rogers is the only person worthy in the whole MCU that can take this serum and not be affected by it. When, although I may have different opinions that Trey has on John Walker, I maybe wouldn't have gotten along with him, but I do think he was a war hero. And I do think he was a noble warrior and soldier at the time. So to say that all of a sudden he's just going to go eccentric and go on this murdering rage is a little bit of a stretch for me. Uh, off of that, I do think the way they treated Battlestar in this, we can maybe break this down a little bit, was really unfair, especially with us being in 2021, where I thought we had to move past the fact that using a secondary character, making him black to help emphasize a white man's story arc, I kind of thought we were past that. And I'm hoping they address that because I think it is uh, a little bit of a step back to the early 2000s when that was used a lot more. Uh, so I think that's a mistreatment of his character. And I do think uh, what he said is right. I mean, yeah, I, I take it. And I don't think it's fair to assume that anyone who takes that is all of a sudden going to become drug raged. I've been... I've been defending John Walker in this podcast, but I, I do want to clarify that it's coming more from a, uh, an angle of defending the character that we could have had in the MCU and the character that could come over from the comics where it would be a, an interesting juxtaposition against Captain America. Um, I just want to double down and say, I think they did the fictional character wrong by having him go into a drug-induced rage and kill that, that guy. I, I'm hoping he's not dead and that, but I'm pretty sure he is. Um, so not in any way uh, justifying any of his actions. Just sad that we we may not get to see him extend his time into the MCU because that kind of seemed like a line that he may not be able to come back from. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think, well, let's just say this, because although all three of us, we, we seem to kind of have... Um, some frustrations with the character development or the way the writing's been going and and kind of what it's going to lead to but all three of us as we discussed after we all watched the episode that was probably one of the coolest shots or moments was seeing U.S. agents standing there with blood on the shield right and again the writing of this story is in that moment you're supposed to feel this anger almost like he betrayed the legacy of Captain America or that he's this bad guy. But going back to him and Carly and kind of their moral code, U.S. agent killed a guy that put himself in a position where the outcome of death was very much a reality. Whereas Carly killed people that are, were completely innocent, yet the emphasis and the exhausted method of trying to paint U.S. agent as this horrible person, I just couldn't buy it. At the end of the episode, I couldn't. And although that shot was just really, really cool, I just don't think it had the effect that it should due to the writing. Yeah, I would say, first of all, yes, that shot, we talked about it afterwards. It's up there from the probably top five shots just because of 
the the twist it takes with his character. I think more than anything else, I just I think it's a pretty impactful shot to see the shield with the blood on it because it's such a dark contrast to what you typically see with Steve Rogers throwing it around and just knocking people over. Uh, but yeah, I do think it is a harsh comparison to compare him with uh, Carly, who's killed innocent people. One of the things I was thinking about, if this, let's take just Battlestar and John Walker and put them back in a war zone. If one of the enemies were to kill Battlestar, one of your brothers in arms, probably your best friend, and now you go to avenge them, if you were watching a war movie and that were to happen, you would think it was great. Now, whether or not obviously killing someone's not a good thing, but if you take it out of that context that it's in and you put it into an actual war, it changes completely. So because it's in context and it's in supposed to be a civilian world, they're not civilians, they're soldiers. And so for him, for John Walker, I, again, I'm not justifying him murdering somebody, but trying to understand his perspective, I, I can see where he's coming from, where he's been on battlefields where it's shoot or get shot. And I actually, <clears throat> actually thought he was going to chase that guy down in a rage and kill him by accident, which would have still been a very interesting conversation to have because he made the decision to take the serum which directly would have led to the death of this guy where he didn't need to die. I thought it was way overdone where they put the camera essentially where the guy was, showed John Walker very intentionally using the edge of the shield. I thought it was way overdone, borderline inappropriate, and I'm just disappointed in the ending. Again, it was lazy. It's like I there's no I feel like a bad person for even entertaining the idea that like I can't defend him as a character now, and I'm disappointed that they took that that complete that whole conversation off the table. That's what I'm disappointed by. Um, there's, there's no ambiguity. There's no ambiguity anymore to it. It's like, oh yeah, he he murdered somebody in cold blood. So there's yeah. no, it's no longer. That's why I kind of was talking about earlier how I wanted to see them explore the gray, but I, they made it pretty hard to see him as a gray character. And I like seeing these gray characters. I think that's something that we really haven't seen in the MCU that much. Absolutely. So it would have been cool for a show about gray area. They made their, they made their point pretty clear. And I don't think a show should have a point. I think it should, a good show wouldn't have a point that it was trying to prove. It would present a lot of different viewpoints and characters and then let you decide. And that's like, we've said, that's pretty much, that's pretty much off the table with this show. Yeah. I think you guys both make a really great point. It's the, as PD said, the ambiguity is the gray area they absolutely injected carly's character and zemo's character with that ambiguity to the point where you're kind of understanding them yet for this new character of u.s agent they don't even allow you to see it that way which um again as we've repeated i do think that it goes back to the writing um so it'll be interesting to see what happens in these next two episodes I do know that it is a different writer that's doing these next two episodes. So it'll be interesting kind of the tone of it and where it will lead to. Um, my personal opinion is I do feel that there won't be really any conclusion. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think we won't see anything after that kind of gives us a, a good ending or even, even like, a lesson to be learned 
I think it's just kind of going to be chaotic and messy. Um, and they're just going to kind of leave it to tie it up or, or finish it in, in a later series or movie. Um, so, and I think that's a little disappointing for, I guess, what we were expecting. So I disagree a little bit. I think they are going to tie it up. But because of how forced this episode felt, I'm worried that it's going to feel rushed. I ultimately think the ending of this series, and we can agree on this or disagree on this, I think the ending is Sam taking the shield permanently and taking on the role of Captain America. I think they just wanted to give him more character development. What's so frustrating about that is that the conversation should be had that there should not be a Captain America. Yeah. That's the best point that this show could make. So I'm just going to be honest. You think I'm emotional now. Wait till five minutes after episode six where Sam gets the shield. I'm going to be pissed. Well, and I think it's going to be a very long and tiresome road to lead to something that could have been basically done without even this series, right? Exactly. Which would make these characters almost feel like not canon. It's like when... It's like when an anime has a movie, the movie exists in this little microcosm next to it and then completely closes off every loose end so that it, you don't ever have to watch it. It could have never happened. That's, I mean, that's basically what they're going to do here, I think, which is sad because I wanted to see Battlestar in the future. I wanted to see John Walker as that gray area Captain America lining up next to the next Iron Man. So if that doesn't happen, I'm going to be super disappointed. And, and I did just want to make one point about you're worried that they're going to kind of tie this up just want to point out like at this point in wandavision agatha hadn't even made her reveal yet basically we're basically at the point where agatha reveals herself so that's how i felt about wandavision but they have bought themselves a little bit of cred with me uh, i do think that two episodes at like a 50 minute runtime that's like a full-length movie you know pre-2010 yeah so there's a decent chance that we get a conclusion now are we gonna like it I, i'm not optimistic at this point to be honest yeah i think i think that's a really good way to wrap things up awesome thanks guys we'll roll right into our character breakdown and i have finally been allowed to do a breakdown of an anime character Uh, so very excited about that Um, i gave jojo and pd 300 issues of my hero academia as homework to read in preparation Uh, they both indicated that they did not do it so let's get started so we're going to break down a character called, named Eraserhead. Um, in line with most anime superheroes, the name is ridiculous. Um, his real name is Shota Aizawa. And his quirk, which in this fictional world of My Hero Academia that's set primarily in Japan, uh, quirks are superpowers. 80% of people have a quirk. His quirk is called Erasure. And it gives him the ability, so long as he maintains eye contact or ha- on his his gaze is on a character, their superpowers, abilities are nullified. Uh, That means that he cannot blink or anything like that, or in that moment, they would regain their abilities. Uh, He carries around eye drops. He has goggles. Sounds completely ridiculous, but give him a Google. He's actually pretty cool. Um, And what's interesting about this character is he's actually primarily seen as a teacher at the high school. Now, the show is called My Hero Academia. It mostly takes place at a high school for superheroes. Uh, think sky high but good and the show is centered around most of these students but obviously the adults in their lives do play a big role a couple quick facts he's from tokyo 
He was ranked fifth in the sixth annual popularity poll, which I believe is the highest for a teacher at the school. Uh, very popular character. Got the action figure right here. Came in this week. Very excited. What I like about Eraserhead and why I chose him as the first one, he's not actually my favorite character from My Hero Academia, but he is pretty much the only one to get exposition retroactively. Um, the continuity of My Hero Academia starts with a bunch of students and kind of goes about a year and a half, two years into the future. Um, but very few of these characters get any explanation of what they were like prior to being teachers at the school. There is a an offshoot that is officially canon called My Hero Academia Vigilantes that follows a couple of kids who didn't make it into the hero school and thus if they wanted to use their superpowers or help people out, they kind of had to break the law as it's technically illegal to break, it's technically illegal to use your superpowers without what's considered a hero license. What do you guys think about that mechanic kind of for a fictional universe? Everybody has powers, but the government kind of has to regulate who is authorized to use their powers and thus you kind of need to go through training, graduate from an academy, things like that. Is that an interesting mechanic or do you, do you think that's kind of silly? I think it works for My Hero Academia. To give some background with my experience with My Hero Academia, I'm not as versed as Trey is. Um, I've, I'm caught up with the show, but I haven't read any of the, the actual comics for it. Um, but I think it works in this universe because it was set out that way from the beginning. I don't think it works for things like Marvel with, for example, uh, you with like Marvel Civil War. It doesn't work because they're trying to do that retroactively in a universe that has gone on for decades working with vigilantes and superheroes and the government kind of just turning their heads around or in some cases even supporting those heroes so i think in a lot of universes it doesn't work i think in my hero academia it makes sense especially considering almost everyone has powers so the grand majority of people would be able to help people but i i think it works in this universe yeah, it's kind of interesting um, you bringing that up, PD, because, yeah, with the DC and the Marvel Universe, the government almost always is portrayed as, like, the, not not just the bad guys, but they just do a terrible job. Like, it's, it, it's always messy, it's always chaotic, whereas with uh, My Hero, it's kind of the opposite, where it's just, like, they they have a really good structure, and as you say, it makes sense. So I think that kind of... It's interesting because I think that kind of just shows in not just comics, but just in real life, that kind of just shows what um, each society maybe portrays the government in, in real life, right? Um, Whether intentional or not, right? The, the writers, it's a reflection of the writers' opinions on, the, on their respective governments in one way or the other. Yes, yes. And that's way better worded than what I just said but that's exactly that's exactly what what I'm trying to get at so I think I think it's cool and I was just and I even think why not why why doesn't Marvel or, or DC kind of take note of this because my heroes done so well it's such a popular show um maybe it's a little too late but it'd be cool to see an adaptation of that in in either one of those comics well, I do think to that point, Joe, I think it is loosely inspired by the X-Men and Xavier's Academy for Gifted Youngsters. Um, I actually, I, I am an X-Men fan, not overwhelmingly so. I do like the new, the new stuff they've been doing lately. I've frequently described 
My Hero Academia as X-Men, but significantly better. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, most of the heroes and villains, their quirks or superpowers can be extremely powerful, but typically all have a significant drawback. Um, for example, a guy can generate heat and flames out of his body, but overheats and dehydrates himself and thus has kind of a built-in failsafe. So with very few exceptions, these heroes and villains are, are kept in check by their own natural abilities and weaknesses, which I really like. And I think Marvel and DC do have more of a hard time balancing themselves partially because they're dealing with such well-known and well-fleshed out characters. What's interesting about Eraserhead is part of this society that we've talked about, the hero world, and it is set in Japan and it does acknowledge that other countries have similar societies. There is even an American hero comes over to Japan, finds himself in the rankings as well, but it is primarily centered on Japanese heroes. The ranking system is a really big deal and the top heroes will get more funding and they will get sponsors and they will run agencies and they're ranked on popularity, lives saved, crimes averted, things like that. And there's pretty nuanced society. What's cool about Eraserhead is while extremely efficient and very capable, I mean, he has really the only quirk in his that vein of kind of nullifying the abilities of others, which is a really is a, can really level the playing field quickly. He is unique because he does not care at all about these rankings. He's depicted as a disheveled middle-aged man teaching at the school because he sees that as his greatest way to contribute. And, and these flashbacks kind of show you how he didn't really even feel as like a good fit for hero life. Um, he was very much kind of the back alley, out of sight, out of mind, drinks coffee at the local shop, uh, doesn't really want to get noticed. And it was really the death of a friend who did have these big hero aspirations that kind of thrust him into the hero path, realizing that, you know, had he acted quicker, had he been more prepared, he could have saved a life in that case and, and kind of uses that as his motivation moving forward uh, with that said he is extremely capable and it's interesting because he even part of his character is he's normally like his hair is long and black and it lays flat and he has this kind of like long scarf around his neck but when he activates his superpower he flips his goggles on and opens his his um obviously opens his eyes and nullifies the superpowers of everyone around him and his hair shoots up into like a typical anime super saiyan hairstyle and the um, scarf is actually a special kind of weapon that like almost levitates. So you get this very distinct appearance that shows you that, like, okay, this guy dresses kind of like a homeless man most of the time, but like he means business now. And he has had, I have to say, probably two of the best moments in the My Hero Academia series have come from him. There's, and they've both come pretty much um, in moments where he was defending his students. So that's pretty much where he turns it on and, and goes ham. I do just want to mention one as we cut this, this segment a little bit shorter. He, his, regardless of how powerful the enemy is, if his eyes are open, he is able to nullify any and all superpowers that that person might have. He does, towards the end of the continuity where we're at now, have this opportunity to be on the battlefield with one villain who has, I think, like eight superpowers at this point. But as long as his eyes remain open, this guy can't use his superpowers. Um, he has another hero helping him around who can control water and is constantly re-moisturizing his eyes so that he never has to blink, right? Because if he blinked for half a second, this guy could disintegrate the whole city. So something happens where he gets shot in the leg by a drug that 
would eliminate his his superpower and thus would give the bad guy complete free reign. And, and, and if he even blinked for a moment, that villain would be able to destroy basically half the city. And this is typical anime stuff, very over the top. He has this kind of moment where he said, how much time do I have? And the guy says, about two seconds before it reaches you know, your heart and completely nullifies your superpower. And without blinking, he cuts off his own leg, which is completely insane, obviously, right? Can you guys imagine anyone from Marvel or DC chopping off their own leg? But wait, there's more. He didn't even blink. So that was the idea. The bad guy needed to use his power. So he shot him with this bullet that would eliminate his superpower, thinking at the very least he loses his power or he blinks, and he did neither one. It was, it was awesome. I highly recommend checking it out. I love this series. Um, very emotional about all of this, but uh, that's a racer hit for you. Yeah, thanks. I think one of the things, just to tie this off, that I really like about Eraserhead as I'm watching the series is that his power to nullify is cool, but it isn't very useful in a fight if he isn't well-trained. Because it's one thing, yeah, if you're in a fight against someone who, in this I'd put like All Might on there, who has completely OP and cheat codes, and you nullify his powers, that's great for you. You nullified his powers, but what are you going to do against him? But he has a way of training himself. He's trained himself to be such a good fighter that by nullifying other people's powers, he puts himself at a huge advantage because now they don't know what to do and he does. So I like that his his skills go beyond just his quirk. And to kind of tie that off, his one of his biggest quotes is that he says at one point while teaching, no good hero is a one-trick pony. And I think that's really cool because you do see a lot of these superheroes – lean on their abilities or their, their big, you know, their big super punch or whatever. And if that were gone, what would you, what would you be worth? So, you know, take away the suit of armor. What's left. It's a, a great question to, to end off there. Um, for this next section, as you can tell by our highlight of Eraserhead and now kind of with our comic arc of Superman smashes the clan, um, we're continuing forward with our kind of Asian highlight week. We want to talk a little bit more about Asian heroes and villains um, with everything going on in the world. And when we talked about this idea, a comic that I really wanted us to read uh, was the Superman Smashes the Clan. Uh, I think this is a great story. It is interesting as it's self-contained, but it's a lot easier to appreciate this story if you understand the context of it and the historical background. So I want to break that down a little bit more. In 1947, in real life, not in the comics, in real life, the, the Ku Klux Klan had started to increase their recruitment and were at peak levels of recruitment. Uh, I don't know if it was just the racism of the time or if people were looking to be a part of a group after the effects of World War II, but their recruiting was through the roof. And there was a political activist at the time, Stetson Kennedy, who infiltrated the Klan and basically came to know all of their secrets, their secret symbols. Uh, he came to the, the conclusion that a lot of it was actually just a play to get money from the higher ups in the clan. So he discovered a lot of these things and took it to the police. And the police basically said, no, they have too much power. We really can't do that much against them, to be honest. So this activist, not really sure what to do, discovered, well, there's another route I can take this. What's the most popular radio show right now? Superman. And so he took this idea of these secrets 
to the writers of the Superman radio show, which was on every day and was extremely popular at the time. And he said, we're going to, I'd like to present these ideas to you. Can you make them into a story? And at the time, the writer said, we're actually looking for kind of our next arc. Uh, we're going to do a 16 episode radio arc on, on this idea. And it's called the Clan of the Fiery Cross. So for 16 episodes, 16 days straight, Superman is fighting the Ku Klux Klan in the radio show. And as a result of that, the Ku Klux Klan uh, recruitment actually went down to zero for a long time. And so this crazy idea that, yeah, Superman not only fought the Klan in the radio show, in real life, because of the way the writers portrayed all these symbols, secrets, and ideas of the Ku Klux Klan in the radio show, it affected real life. And so they used it as a way to uh, be activists against the KKK. Well, that's awesome because you can see in the story, and I appreciate they did this, they really did portray the beliefs of the Klan. So you could see what would drive a person to make these insane decisions, right? And they did, they, they showed us kind of the sales pitch of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, um, we're super American, one race, whatever. So you at least could see, okay, that's insane, but you can see what, how people got caught up in it. Um, and several times they thought, oh, we're the most, you know, we're all about the America and Superman, you must understand where we're coming from. And he was just like, nope, and then punches them. But so if you looked at the Klan during this time when the radio show was running, it totally makes sense to someone who thinks, oh, I'm kind of thinking about joining the Klan. And then all of a sudden Superman, the most American thing that had ever happened to America was fighting the Klan. You can see how that would deter anyone who was on the fence, right? At least for, like you said, at least for a time. Yeah. Um, I think it's incredible. <laughs> uh, I always love it when comics and pop culture have a way of affecting people uh, in the real world. So again, to kind of tie this back to modern times, this story now, Superman Smashes, Smashes the Klan, was written by Gene Ewan Lang. Uh, he is a comic book writer who is famously known. He was actually went to college as an engineer, worked as an engineer for a little bit, and kind of got into teaching kids and then got into children's comics and then other comics along the way. Uh, really well-educated, comes from an Asian family, obviously, uh, Asian-American. And so he was ecstatic about the idea of writing this story. So it's an homage to that original 1947 radio show. And if I can just give the summary really quick, uh, you get the perspective of Superman, and then you get the perspective of two um, Asian children who move into Metropolis with their family. So we're we're, we're Berta, sorry, not saying that with a Spanish accent, and Tommy Lee uh, basically move into Metropolis and um, their dad gets a new job. And so they're moving into this suburb area and dealing with the clan who in the first night being there puts up a fiery cross outside their lawn to let them know they're not welcome. And so the story follows this idea of these two children, their perspective of feeling like outsiders while following Superman and his feeling of an outsider. So it explores Superman's origin again. Um, you see him develop his powers throughout the time as he discovers more about himself. Uh, he realizes that he's kind of hiding a lot about himself. And that you see the other side of it with these two children who are interacting with Superman and helping him discover himself as they kind of fight the racism behind the KKK. Uh, just really quick, we can kind of open this up into discussion. I think we can talk a little bit more about the story, but that's the general idea. Um, what were your guys' general take, first of all, 
on the writing style. It's obviously written more as if it were a 1940s comic, but it's a modern comic. It was written in 2019. What's your guys' take on that? Did you enjoy it? Was it too much? What did you guys think? Yeah, for me, I one thing that I really appreciate is you're taking kind of this story and these historical things that are very dark and sinister and very complicated and you're presenting it in a way that a three-year-old would understand and it's written in a way that really could be be read like a children's book even the art to me came off that way where it's very much um simple straightforward and I'm saying that as a good thing like there aren't a lot of complicated issues in this it's very very straightforward and so for me, as far as the writing style, at first, I, I felt like maybe campy isn't the word, but I did feel a little bit that it was too black and white. Um, but as I kept going, I understood that that was the point. I think, I think you made a great point. I actually could see this being one of, if not the first comic book I read to my kid when he's four or five, because you're right, he would totally understand every point that it's trying to make, teach a great lesson, be written in that way. I, I liked how it was written. I love period pieces. I love like feeling like I'm reading a 1940s comic without having to look at what the art looked like in the 40s because that personally isn't my favorite thing. I, I, I love the idea of a retro comic and I hope I would love to see more of it. Um, I also love this retelling of Superman's origin story. I think it's one that's told way too many times, a lot like Batman, but I was here for this version. I liked how it paralleled this girl's growth. I liked how she played a role in it. I liked watching, okay, what did Superman do before he could fly? He ran along the power lines. That's dope. It also was very interesting to me how I didn't feel like he was super overpowered when he couldn't fly. And it was kind of an eye-opener for me that I think that's what makes superheroes feel kind of broken and overpowered is all of a sudden being able to get from point A to point B super, super fast. Uh, watching Superman climb the Daily Planet was really cool. Seeing him kind of hold himself back until you know he could really accept who he was and having that juxtaposed against a small Asian girl who just moved from Chinatown also wanting to just be herself. It was, it was really well done. And I also liked watching him kind of grow into himself, whether that was the scene with the strongman at the circus, uh, didn't, didn't love the flashbacks with his parents, to be honest. I don't know how much that added to the story, but everything else I'd give a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point as well. That So I've read this now twice. I reread it for the show. And I wanted to get, the first time I read through it, I really wanted to get an idea of the political scene, um, the KKK, how it fights, how it serves as a story against that. And as far as that goes, amazing. This time through, I really wanted to see, okay, but is it a good Superman story? And so I was really curious to see if I were coming into this without having read a Superman comic ever, would I still enjoy this and get to like Superman? And I genuinely think that I would because you get that period piece of him when he started out in 38, that he didn't have all the powers. He was just basically an extreme strong man. And they play that up in this very well that Roberta has a, a phrase where she says, humans can run, you just run faster. Humans can jump you just jump faster. And she's like, but that's not the case. You can do so much more. And I like that, that idea that Superman's playing himself down to be more human, but in the end he accepts his full 
full power set of, okay, I am an outsider and I have to accept that. And I have to just be different and be okay with that. So, and I think that's one of the things that people don't understand about Superman. They say that he isn't relatable. uh, But if you've never felt like an outsider, if you've never felt uh, that maybe you don't belong, that you don't want to know what to do with the abilities you're given, if that's not something that you relate to, then I envy you because I definitely have had plenty of times in my life where I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. I think that's where I relate so much to this character. Yeah, I think for me, what what I really enjoyed about this was that Superman was very relatable and it has to do with the fact that they, the, the I guess the most complex kind of topic of, of this the series was what is identity crisis and how it affects different people and I think it takes it again it takes this complicated uh yeah topic and it simplifies it to the point where you see that identity crisis isn't necessarily this the the author is not saying that identity crisis is a terrible thing and we should we should avoid it or we shouldn't have it he's showing that it's unavoidable that each one of us are given circumstances or um, are in certain situations, whether it be our community, society, um, culture, race, anything really is attached to certain insecurities which lead to this um, identity crisis, right? And so it makes sense. It makes sense that Superman may at one time not have felt that he fit in. Um, it makes sense that even Roberta and Tommy Lee's dad um, even had his moment where he had negative thoughts against the, the Black community, right? At first, he kind of didn't accept the fact that these, yeah. these Black people were helping him, even though one of them was, was a detective, right? And so it kind of just shows that a lot of these issues aren't really anything to do with our own personalities. It has to do with just the circumstances and scenarios that we inevitably grow up in. And again, tying that back to our race, our culture, the people we surround ourselves with, our own insecurities. And that's very much shown with Chuck, Chuck's um, uncle and a lot of the KKK, KKK characters there is that it really has more to do with their own insecurities than it does um, that unfortunately are then exaggerated and, and, and then practiced through a very dangerous and very uh, terrible, terrible way, right? Actually, I'm glad you mentioned Chuck. Uh, I did want to bring up a couple of feelings I had about him. And Chuck, uh, kind of as a recap, was the small boy who at the beginning I don't know if he said something racist or he just kind of was angry about at Tommy Lee for coming in from Chinatown and being better at baseball than him. I don't, I don't know that he actually said anything racist. I don't remember. Uh, he was just a kid. He was just a frustrated kid, but he kind of goes home and you meet his uncle who you then later find out is uh, the grand scorpion of the KKK, which was like the president of that local chapter or, or to something of that effect. And he kind of pressures Chuck, who's like 12 or probably 13 to join him. And, and you, I thought you get the most emotional turmoil outside of Roberta and maybe Superman from Chuck, who literally says at one point, like, well, like, how do I hate my uncle for being in the, the, in the KKK if he's done so much good for my family and I? And he, he has these emotions of like, well, this, 
this person that I love, it, he shows a very interesting side of the story um, that I, I think gave it a lot of depth. Ultimately, obviously, his uncle doesn't change his ways, continues to be a bad person, and Chuck denounces him, and it's, it's really powerful, but I'm glad that they showed how hard that would be for a, a child in that position. Yeah, I think I think Chuck is what ties it to humanity and makes the KKK just not like a villain. I mean, obviously, the KKK in of itself is a terrible idea, but they bring in some humanity to the sense of some of the people that are closely tied to them and have been influenced by kind of this this belief that they have. And tying that back to, again, the idea of the story with recruiting, again, you see that in the comic of what you mentioned earlier, Trey, about the, the one religion and the, the one culture, one people, basically. And so you see that with Chuck, where he kind of is raised with that idea and that mindset. And then when he has to confront that with having these, uh, these Chinese immigrants moving in, it just really, it really is a stark contrast for him. Um, so I think in that regard, I think Chuck really ties it all together. Um, I do want to kind of end off with uh, Roberta's perspective, because I feel like she's the one that we get the most from aside from superman uh what did you guys think of her perspective of seeing the racism and then also her perspective of basically improving superman and making him feel better about himself so i actually in a conversation that i had this week quoted roberta uh, i read the comic almost right after we made the assignment really enjoyed it and it was a harmless conversation somebody said you know made a generalization about people, nothing super offensive, but I just said, I said to them, you know, I was reading this comic book, I explained the background for Superman Smash the Clan. I said, one thing that the little girl says is, you know, quote, we're not all anything, you know? White people aren't all one thing. Black people aren't all one thing. Members of a certain faith or church are not all one thing. And I think that's a very dangerous mindset that we we have very prevalent in our society. and and. What's interesting is when she says that there's a there's another little girl who says like I think she says oh you Asians are all so smart and hardworking something positive right it was something that was positive and she just said no we're not all anything I'm Roberta and I'm my own person essentially uh, and I think that would be probably my biggest takeaway from this comic is the danger of generalizations and that right that every person has to be unique and be themselves. Yeah, I really liked the development of her character because um, one thing that stuck out to me was she she's very insecure, she's shy, she doesn't like change, which all of us can very much relate to. Um, and she gets frustrated with her brother who seems to, to make friends quickly, albeit through maybe not the best way where he's kind of being self-deprecating and kind of putting his culture... Um, on the line so that he can kind of open up to to the new community um, that they're in and so that really frustrates her but then to the same token you also see that tommy is quick to defend chuck right and and roberta at first isn't because she sees chuck as this this evil kid who's doing wrong and and then you see that that tommy's actually defending him so i like that with with Roberta and with a lot of the characters, it shows kind of these these um, conflicting issues that 
as Trey said, is, isn't really anything. It's not highlighting anything good. It's not highlighting anything bad. It just, just so happens to be the case. And then when they go to the movies, even Roberta runs into her old friends and she's extremely excited to see them. And then what happens is her friends say, oh, you always thought that you were better than us. Right. And that, that just hits Roberta. Like, and, and you can tell, right. That that's not something she ever even thought of. And they even tell her, go, go hang out with, with your new friends and you know and she knows that she's not really close to them at all so she's kind of this she's kind of stuck in this limbo where she can't really relate to to anyone as far as when she was in Chinatown to when she's in Metropolis except for when she interacts with Superman. I like how she went as far as to take responsibility for why she didn't have any friends at the end she she realizes that it was her inability to open up to a certain extent that left her kind of friendless and alone, which is a lot of growth for a little girl. It was really cool. Yeah. Again, just to kind of tie this off, I, I think her perspective was the perfect way of tying it all together too. Again, with Chuck kind of being the bridge between humanity and the KKK. I think what she does is really show how she's dealing with being basically persecuted for her, her race and her culture and then comparing that with Superman, who is seen as this all-American kid, all-American guy, who's an alien. And so by telling her, by telling him to embrace that, embrace the fact that he may not be human, she's also kind of contributing to the fact that she needs to embrace who she is. I think one of the most tender moments, too, in this series is the idea that Superman gives her uh, the cape. I love that, that passing on of legacy, where he says, yeah, I, I have a bunch of these capes. Why don't you keep this one? Because we know how important that that red jacket that she has was to her. And then by taking on this new Superman cape, it's kind of uh, empowering for her to realize, okay, I am just like him. I am in a place that I maybe don't fit in, but he's doing his best to do what he can for this community. I can do what I can for this community as well. So overall, uh, I love this story. Uh, It's one of my favorite uh, Superman origin stories just because it is so different from what you typically get. I like how they contrast it with uh, these political beliefs and political motives. So overall, I am glad that you guys liked it. Like I said, I was a little concerned just because I know it's not your typical comic. It's definitely a period piece. Uh, They definitely have some dialogue that, that might feel outdated, but then once you come to that conclusion that the writer's doing this on purpose, it all fits together. So I thought it was a very good modern take on a classic story and tying in all of the history and the context of what Superman did for the 40s and how we can use that today. That same idea of acceptance, especially with everything going on in the world, still is applicable. And that's why Superman will never be outdated. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for, for contributing this week and, and all of our listeners. We want to close with two five-star reviews we, we received this week. Just want to say thank you. The first one being from Jedi underscore R. Great coverage of a range of comic book characters and storylines. And another one that says, If you're new to the comic book scene, this is the best place to start. They give clear, concise information on various characters and stories, making it easy to understand and relate to. If you already have a good feel for comic books, this is an awesome place to dive deeper. 
and expand your comic book knowledge. So we want to say thank you to everybody who gave us a rating this week. Uh, just a reminder, if we for all five-star ratings, we will read the reviews out loud, uh, assuming they are appropriate for the air. And looking forward, next week we will breaking down, be breaking down the character of Nightwing, the comic book story Daredevil Born Again, which is widely considered the best Daredevil story arc uh, in existence. And then breaking down Falcon and Winter Soldier number five. Yeah, on that note, just again, thank you guys for being here. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, please go on to our Instagram, follow us there, subscribe to our podcast. Obviously, we're on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. So please reach out to us on there. Let us know if you have any characters you want us to break down for you. Uh, we're always there and happy to help out with uh, expanding these characters and learning more about the comic book universe. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you.